Today, we celebrate the fact that 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 body of Jesus that was placed there in the tomb on Friday, on Sunday, that tomb was empty. And an empty tomb meant everything, everything. Romans chapter one tells us that it was that empty tomb because of the resurrection of Jesus that would declare that Jesus was God. And so I'm gonna ask you to do something. I'm gonna ask you to grab your Bible. If you've got a Bible with you, turn to to Luke chapter 23, the very end of Luke 23 and the beginning of Luke chapter 24. And we're gonna simply walk through a passage here. I think it's gonna be important. It's about three women who go to an empty tomb. Now, Luke here, who is a doctor by training, seems to anticipate that there are going to be some questions about the validity of the resurrection. And so in this passage here in Luke 24, Luke is going to do two things that are absolutely brilliant. Two things that you cannot argue with here. But first, let's kind of set the context here. At the end of chapter 23, starting in verse 55, he says, the women who had come with him from Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. And then they returned and prepared spices and ointment. And so on, this, on the Sabbath, they rested according to the commandment. So in other words, these women who, these three women who had come from Galilee, they follow the procession of Jesus's body along with the, the soldiers and the officials and everybody. They're taking Jesus's body. They follow it from the place that he was crucified to the place that they were going to lay him in the grave, in the tomb. They see his body being laid in there, and then they go back to where they're at, and they begin to prepare those spices, those ointments for embalming Jesus' body. Now, you have to understand, this is a pretty amazing group of women. I mean, the fact that the courage that they happen to show here at this moment, to show up here, not only at his crucifixion, but to show up at the, res- you know, at, at the tomb there as well during this time. The political tension here was unbelievable. The fact that you were, were being considered a Christ follower would put you in a spot where maybe they would think about taking your life as well. In fact, you were even questioned if you were from Galilee. And they're there by themselves. There's nobody with them. The disciples weren't there. I mean, they were afraid, hiding. And the reason, I mean, this is such an incredibly wonderful, they were there to serve Jesus. They were going to go in and anoint his body. They were not going to leave him beaten up like that. Now, look at the beginning of chapter 24. He says, but on the first day of the week, At early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices that they had prepared, and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. So they get there, and they notice that the stone has been rolled away. Now, that's not a small detail. That might sound like a small detail, but it's really not. The tomb actually took two, you know, strong Roman soldiers actually to move. It's so interesting because, you know, some skeptics have suggested that maybe, you know, Jesus sort of just rallied, you know, after they put him in the tomb. Maybe he got there and maybe the cool of the the stone that they laid his body on, you know, was enough to just to cause him to sort of rally. Now think about that for a second. The expectation here is, wait a minute, you're telling me that this guy who had a, 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 a soldier's, you know, a 
big, long sword, you know, stuck through his heart completely. He's bled out. And somehow they think that, that, that his blood coagulated just enough to be able to stop up both sides of the heart that had been penetrated. And then somehow, through all of that, his heart starts beating again. And somehow, he gets all of his strength. In fact, he gets more than his own strength. He gets the strength of two men to get up and move a stone out of the way and then just walks off into the night. The, the truth is, Jesus was beaten within an inch of his life, he was beaten so badly that he couldn't carry his own cross any longer. He gets there, they they thrust that spear through his heart, he bleeds out, he's declared dead. They take him and they put him in the ground and the best that a skeptic can come up with is he rallied. Keep going, look at the passage. Verse three, It says, but when they they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. And while they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, why do you seek the living among the dead? So it tells us here, they go in, they notice that the body isn't there, uh, but there are a couple of angels there. Verse five says they're terrified. I mean, who wouldn't be? I mean, if you consider all the the, the previous day's events and all the things that have happened and they're startled by the moved stone and and now the empty tomb is confusing to them and now they got two supernatural beings standing there that just lit up, you know, the room in this case. I mean, given the circumstances, every single one of us would be terrified at that moment. But then the angels ask a question. Why do you seek the living among the dead. Now, they weren't looking for an answer. This is a rhetorical question. They want them to stop and think. Think back. Do you remember what Jesus said? This is the the first thing here that Luke does. It's absolutely brilliant. Is Luke is going to bring up prophecy. See, prophecy is when you say something is going to happen, something extraordinary is going to happen, and then it actually does. Like, it wouldn't be prophetic for me to stand up here and go, next week, I'm going to drive my truck. I drive my truck every day. That's not prophetic. But if I stood up here and say, you know, next week, you know, I'm going to get killed, and then I'm going to raise from the dead, that would be prophetic. That would be a big deal, right? To say something like that. The angels, then they, they, they remind here these three women here in verses six and seven, he says, and he is not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the son of man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. And so this wasn't a secret. Jesus had, had proclaimed this and preached this to everybody. I mean, if you were to look in in John chapter two, he takes the religious leaders, the Jewish religious leaders, the Pharisees, and he tells them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews said, it's taken 46 years to build this temple and you will raise it in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. 
And when therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this and they believed the scriptures and the word that Jesus had spoken. In Mark chapter eight, he says it to his followers and and he began to teach them that the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. In Luke 9, he says it to his disciples. The son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and on the third day raised. And so it wasn't like Jesus is doing or saying something that they had not heard before. He's fulfilling his own prophecy. Look, here's the truth. There is no worthy argument that stands up to fulfill prophecy. None. And it's very important that you understand this, Christian. That's why there is no room. There is no room within the faith for false prophets. None. Look at verses 8 and 9. Verse 8 says, and they remembered his words and returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the 11 and to the rest. Now this is where Luke does the second brilliant thing here. Here he's going to just, in verse 10, he's going to give us eyewitnesses. He's going to name names. Look what he says in verse 10. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary the mother of James and the other women with them who told all these things to the, the apostles. So he comes along here and he names names. First you have Mary Magdalene. Mary Magdalene, if you don't know, was a former prostitute who Jesus actually cast seven demons out of. She was a social outcast. There's no getting around it. She would be on one end of her perspective. Right next to her, though, is Joanna. Joanna here is the wife of Chusa. Chusa was King Herod's administrator. If you're in the business world, you'll understand this. He would basically be the COO of Judea, of all of Judea. He is a representative of the Roman government. So this woman is a socialite. Now think about that for a second. Two of these people here are following Jesus, going to serve Jesus, and one of them is a former prostitute and the other one is an absolute Roman socialite. That's what happens with Jesus. It doesn't matter who you are. We all come together and find forgiveness at the foot of the cross. Then it says that it was Mary here, the mother of James. Now I want you to understand why mentioning these names is such a big deal. Luke was written 40 years after Jesus' crucifixion, which means there would still be eyewitnesses alive. Let me give you a hypothetical. I hate, I don't want to embarrass you here, but how many of you were alive in 1982? Okay, you could be, you could be eyewitness. Imagine here for a second that if I told you, hey, back in 1982, this guy came along and he did some amazing things, he built some amazing things and, and, and almost unheard of stuff and lots of people saw him. And in fact, I'm gonna give you a list of people that were eyewitnesses and so you could come to Scottsdale if you want to and you could check them all out, you could track down these people and ask them for yourself. That is exactly what Luke is doing here. He is giving people the option to go check it out. You don't have to believe me. If you really want to know, go talk to these people. They saw Jesus alive. 
That's an amazing, I mean, by the way, there were lots of people that saw Jesus alive. In 1 Corinthians 15, it tells us that in just one incident alone, there were five, over 500 people that saw him. I mean, this is brilliant. So Luke says, here's three names, go track them down, and they're eyewitnesses. And it, what, you know, here's what's really important out of this whole thing. If, if you treat Jesus as merely a historical figure, just some religious figure someplace in history whose followers said he rose from you know, the grave, but you think maybe they were just kind of wishful thinking in the whole process, you were denying the evidence. You are denying the evidence of fulfilled prophecy. You are denying the evidence of eyewitnesses. You know, one of the things that Jesus' story does is it pushes us to speak, to tell other people. I mean, it's just too massive of a truth not to. How can you take the one pure cure that can save us from the greatest enemy that we have, a death, and not tell everybody that we love? It moves us, it pushes us to share with people that it is by faith that we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus alone. Look at verse 11. Verse 11 says, but these words seemed to them to be idle, an idle tale, and they did not believe them. So they go and they tell the disciples, who, by the way, remember, were, were hiding. And it's amazing here because the first skeptics to the resurrection were Jesus' own disciples. But the disciples do the appropriate thing here. Look at verse 12. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb, stooping down and looking in. He saw the linen cloths by themselves, and he went home and marveled at what had just happened. So in other words, they deal with the eyewitness testimony. They go check it out, and verse 12 says he marvels. John chapter 20 says he believes. Now, here's the question. Why, why would I tell you this story? Why would we talk about this story? Because in John chapter 20, verse 31 it says the, this. He says, but these, the gospel stories here were written so that you might believe. That you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and by believing you might have life in his name. Listen, belief changes everything. But I want to encourage you, don't just take my word for it. Let me give you some examples of how belief changes everything. You know, each one of us has a cardboard sign. You may not think you do, but you do. Each one of us has a story that we've been living. But do you have both sides of it? Do you have the redeemed side, the forgiven side, the brand new life, the accepted in Christ, the shame removed, new life, hope, love, security? all the things you've wanted. How do you get that? Romans chapter nine, verse 
Verse, chapter 10, verse 9 says, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Romans chapter 10, verse 13 says, whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. I want to encourage you. You could believe, you could trust. And it's in that belief, that trust, that God does a miraculous thing. He will create a new you. He will give you a new birth spiritually. I can't explain it in any other worldly way. I just can't. Because it's not something that happens that you can buy or you can purchase. It's something that happens by our trust. And so if that's something that you want to do, if you'd like to, you know, place your trust in Christ, I'm going to give you that opportunity. I'm going to pray out loud, and I'd ask you to pray right where you're at with me silently, right where you're at. Would you do that with me? Would you all just take a moment, please, and just close your eyes for a second? Not that there's anything inherently spiritual about you closing your eyes, but it will focus you on you. Dear God, I'm asking you to come into my life and change me. I'm asking you to come in and forgive me, to make me clean inside, to give me new life, to make me a part of your family, to give me hope and encouragement and love and a purpose and a direction and a future that I know only comes by serving you. And so I ask you to forgive me and I pray that you would take control of me. I believe in you. Let me ask you a question. No one's looking around. But if you prayed that prayer, would you do me a favor so I'll know how to pray? Would you just slip your hand up and let me see it? You could put it back down afterwards. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. God bless you. Listen, I want to encourage you that when we're done here, you can look back up again. I'm sorry. When we're done here, there's going to be a group of people that will be right down here at the bottom, people here that, that are here to pray, and they would feel so blessed and so honored to be able to pray with you to get this new life of yours just right. Nothing could be better than that. We also want you to know that if you prayed that prayer, we have a free gift for you. It's gonna be out on the tables out there in the lobby. It'll say free gift. We'd encourage you to stop and, and grab one of those. We also want you to know that we would love to be able to help you in this new walk, to begin to walk in a way that you will succeed spiritually and become the person that God wants you to be. Jesus paid the debt that we might have new life. This is your chance. This is your chance to become who God has called you, who God created you to be. Step forward and become that person who God wants you to be. Watch what amazing things happen in your life. God is at work. Let him be at work in you. God bless you. Love you all. Have a great Easter.